At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Greg Peterson here, and welcome to the 321st episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together educating and inspiring you to become part of your food revolution. A popular fertilizer for organic farmers is fish poop, and aquaponic systems have been used to help create nutrient-dense growing mediums for healthy plants. Let us teach you how in a few easy steps. Just text GROWFISH to 33444 or visit IWANTTOGROWFISH.COM and you will receive our free webinar on how to grow your own fish-powered garden. Today on our podcast, we have someone who loves discovering and teaching the many levels of permaculture. We're talking with Adam Brock about social permaculture. Adam is a facilitator, author, and designer working at the intersection of urban agriculture, sustainable business, and social change. As co-founder of The Grow House, Adam helped transform an abandoned half-acre greenhouse in Colorado's most polluted zip code into an award-winning hub for urban agriculture. The Grow House engages thousands of low-income residents per year, grows 1,500 heads of lettuce per week, and has a million-dollar annual budget. As a certified permaculture designer since 2008, Adam is active in the local and national permaculture communities. In May of 2017, Adam released his first book, Change Here Now, Permaculture Strategies for Personal and Community Transformation. It is a recipe book of solutions for social change grounded in ecological principles. Welcome to the show today, Adam. Are you ready to rock permaculture? I am so ready. Let's do this. Sweet. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Yeah, I'd love to. So I was born and raised in Denver, Colorado, and that's that's where I still live now. But I took a little detour for college. You know, Denver wasn't a big enough city for me when I was a teenager. I wanted to be even in, in a bigger city. So I went to school at NYU and at a program there where I got to make up my own major. Oh, love that. Yeah. Oh, it's perfect. And, you know, I went in not knowing at all what what I wanted to study. But through coursework, just, you know, learning what you learn in college, I became more and more aware of what was going on around climate change and ecosystem depletion and biodiversity loss and and got really, you know, kind of worked up about that and then started looking for, for solutions. And that led me to sustainable design, which led me to permaculture. And I ended up getting my permaculture design certification for college credit. Wow. It worked out really well. I I took a whole semester. Actually, I don't know if you're familiar with the ECOSA Institute. I am. Up in Prescott. Yep. So I'm a graduate of there. And then that kind of, you know, set me on my path. Once once I encountered permaculture, everything kind of snapped into place, as I'm sure is familiar to you and, and lots of your listeners. Oh, yes. So I moved back to Denver about a year after graduating college and was doing a lot of work just kind of around town, experimenting with permaculture in my own backyard and 
meeting people and, and through some mutual friends, I ended up getting involved in this nonprofit just as it was getting off the ground. A local developer had bought this big abandoned greenhouse in this neighborhood that was kind of a food desert and needed someone to help actually figure out what to do with this building. So that was where I came in and I brought in some of my buddies and together we came up with this vision to transform it into the organization that it is now. And so I'm sure, yeah, you know, we can get into a lot about the grow house in a minute, but I'll just say that for now, you know, that was kind of my full-time gig for about six years. And just a couple years ago, as that organization continues to thrive, I felt like that my job there was done. You know, I, mm -hmm. I had always saw myself as kind of a, a catalyst and I, I decided it was time to, to step back and let other people take the reins. And so since then, I've been kind of sharing what I've learned there with people all over the country. I, I just came out with this book, as you mentioned. So I've been traveling, doing workshops and classes around that, as well as teaching a lot of permaculture here locally in town. So yeah, that's that's been my journey so far. And it's, it's been a really amazing one. Sweet. So for my permaculture designers out there, I always like to ask this question. What is permaculture? Great. I'm, I'm glad you asked that because I'm sure every person you ask gives you a different answer. And that's one of the great things about permaculture and, and also one of the confusing things for people just getting into it. I think my favorite definition is one that my colleague Rafter Sass Ferguson uses, and it's very short and simple. It's meeting human needs while restoring ecosystem health. And, and I like that one because it's so simple, but also because it's broad. It encompasses not just the garden and farm aspect of permaculture, but any human needs we have, shelter and technology, as well as the kind of less tangible ones like community and, and meaning. Mm -hmm. And then it also has, you know, really embeds this, this idea that part and parcel of doing permaculture is restoring ecological landscapes. Mm -hmm. That is just by the very nature of what we do in permaculture. It, it has that earth care aspect to it. So meeting human needs while restoring ecosystem health. Perfect. I invented this one years ago, the art and science of working with nature. Yep. That's a really great one. Yeah. How do we work in the flow rather than against nature? Yep. I love teaching permaculture design courses because, you know, everybody that goes through it finds it really life-changing in some way. They're really intended to be kind of this immersion into the permaculture mindset in a way that you can't really get from a shorter course or from reading a book or from, you know, watching YouTube videos. I think you can pick up a lot of knowledge from those things, but a well-structured PDC really allows you to, to live and breathe permaculture, to practice permaculture, to feel what it actually is like to create a micro permaculture community within the group that you're creating over the course of that 72 hours. And, you know, usually they're held on demonstration sites where you can see it in practice. You know, it's a lot of information. I, I call it drinking from the fire hose. <laughs> but more important than the actual, you know, knowledge that's conveyed is I think the sense of community that you build, the the networking that you do with the other people in the course. Yeah. And that just kind of overall feeling of, okay, this is what it feels like to embrace this new paradigm 100%. You mentioned drinking from a fire hose. It's really a an immersion. Often they're given as a residential, so you're someplace for a couple of weeks. Or as we do it here in Phoenix, we do it over five weekends. So you actually spend 72 hours working on a project with your fellow students. Is that not the case? Yeah, that's totally right. And and I teach both the intensive two-week ones and the weekend courses, and I like them both for different reasons. I think it just depends on the student and their, you know, what they're after. But either way, 
you're right, a big part of it, in, in our case, at least in the classes I teach, it's a, a real-world design project where people are working with a client, they're interviewing that client, they're surveying the landscape, and they're coming up with their own design solutions that in many cases often get implemented. So there's this real feeling of, of ownership and buy-in to not just learning about making the world a better place, but just by the very act of taking this course, you've left helping a client improve their own landscape and community. Yeah. Well, and really the cool thing about permaculture design courses, or as we call them, PDCs, they happen all over the world. You did yours in New York City, right? Yeah, correct. I, I took mine in New York as I was you know, learning about permaculture. I, I learned a lot about the community out there, but most of my teaching happens here in Colorado where I live now. And I teach in the mountains every year at an amazing place called the Central Rocky Mountain Permaculture Institute that has a mature food forest that's been around for 30 years and some amazing greenhouses and mm -hmm. stuff like that, as well as an urban course that's on the weekends here in Denver. And yeah, I've, I've visited permaculture sites and permaculture courses all across the country, and everyone is different, and, and I love that. Each ecosystem, each community takes this 72-hour framework and adapts it to fit what makes sense for, for them and, and what's going on in their area. Yeah. So what really pushed you into writing a book about permaculture? Because this sounds like a pretty in-depth tome that you've written. Maybe that's not the right word for it, but... Tell me about that. I had never thought of myself as an author or, you know, thought that I had enough uh, stuff to share that would be worthy of a book. But, you know, as I continued down this path of starting this organization, a big part of my permaculture journey was about, you know, not, not just how does permaculture look in the garden or farm or, or greenhouse, but how do we really apply these same ethics and principles and design process and this whole paradigm to our engagement with each other. So to things like starting a business, to things like how we manage organizations, how we run meetings, how we you know, do social movements, and even our own kind of individual goal setting and self-care. And so that was a lot of stuff that I didn't hear too many people talking about when I was first teaching permaculture. So I started you know, going to different gatherings, conferences, convergences, kind of sharing my thoughts on the issue, making presentations here and there. And it was at the International Permaculture Convergence in Cuba uh -huh. in 2013. Oh, nice. Yeah, which was an amazing experience in and of itself. And, and I had the opportunity there to present some of my thinking about this kind of social permaculture, as I call it. One of my mentors and friends, Eric Tonsmeyer, was at that convergence, and he's written many books, and he suggested to me that some of this stuff might be uh, suitable for a book because he, he hadn't seen anything else in the permaculture literature out there. I kind of sat on that for a while and, and took that as a sign of encouragement and eventually kind of put a proposal together, sent it to a few publishers, and one of them was really interested. Nice. And this whole notion of social permaculture, there's not a lot written about that yet, I wouldn't think. There's not. I mean, there are a couple good books out there that, that I reference in my own, but none that approach it in, in quite as systematic way as, as I was trying to do in this book. Because, you know, what I found is in every kind of permaculture design course and Bill Mollison's original manual, you know, there's this acknowledgement that, you know, sometimes people call it invisible structures, that this social stuff is really important and permaculture needs to pay attention to it and go figure it out. Right. There's like talk about eco-villages or co-ops, but there's just a couple examples, but not nearly enough specificity or tangibility to really allow someone who's just learning this stuff to really wrap their heads around it and see how can I literally apply this to my organization, to my community. And so what I wanted to do with this book is give people these very concrete practical design tools 
with examples of how you can actually implement social permaculture, how you can design communities in the way we design gardens or design the conditions for community to thrive. And so, yeah, that's, that's the way the book is laid out. It's, it's in what's called a pattern language, which is basically just a series of really short chapters, and each chapter is a solution to a problem that folks often encounter in communities or businesses or, or their own personal lives. Over 80 solutions, I see. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's 82, something like that. What's your favorite? Oh, man, so hard to pick, right? That's like, you oh, know, picking a favorite child. Yeah, there's one that comes to mind a lot for me called the edge of change. And that's something about this recognition that most of us who are out to make the world a better place have a vision, right? An idea, a big picture utopia of the world we want to see. And it might be very detailed. Uh-huh. And then there's this other set of constraints that in political science is called the Overton window. And that's basically the realm of what's possible in, in our current discourse, or maybe in your current community, right. what is considered politically acceptable. And so, you know, permaculture, we talk a lot about edge and optimizing edge. And so this chapter I have on the edge of change is about looking at where is that intersection between the ideal and the possible, and that our work as permaculturists should always be looking to ride that edge. And hopefully to expand that Overton window, the, the window of what's possible, and to move it farther and farther into our realm of the ideal, but that we should always be looking for that overlap. Because if we're just on the ideal side and not in, in, a, in the possible side, then we're going to be seen as kooky or crazy and, and no one yeah. will pay attention to us. If we're just in the possible side and not working on what we really feel like is the world we want to see, then we're going to feel just, you know, kind of like we're going through the motions, like we're gears in the machine and it's not really living the life we want to live. And so, yeah, the edge of change is about looking for that sweet spot. Perfect. So you mentioned it, the edge concept. Tell us about that, because that's a, that's a concept in permaculture that we use a lot in design. So edges are really, really important to pay attention to. In ecosystems, and, and everything in permaculture always comes back to natural systems and observing natural systems. So you look at ecosystems, and you'll find that the areas at the edge between two ecosystems, or in ecology they're called ecotones, are where there is usually the most dynamic stuff going on. There's the most biodiversity there's the most flow of nutrients. And it's because you have you know, a whole set of species in, say, the forest and a whole different set of species in, say, the woodland or in the grasslands right mm -hmm. next to it. Yeah. And then you have a whole third set of species that's only present where those two intersect. So it's triple the diversity. And there's all kinds of interesting things that happen along that edge. It's this kind of generative friction, you could say. And so you could apply that in society as well. You know, the edge between cultures is where a lot of innovation happens. The edge, you know, our, our own comfort zone. If we're pushing our edge of, of where we're comfortable, that's usually where personal growth happens. And so really always looking for edges and where the best kind of edges to design with are mm -hmm. is, a, is a common theme you'll find in permaculture design, whether it's a landscape or a community. And one of the things that I learned in my permaculture design course one of the principles or one of the concepts in permaculture is this notion of degenerative and regenerative design. And I've spent the last 25 years, 26 years since I did my first permaculture design course overlaying the notion of regenerative on my life and trying to develop or working on developing uh, regenerative systems in my life. One of the things that I tell people all the time is that there's in the human condition, no regenerative systems. Have you thought through that process? 
Yeah, I, I think about that all the time. And, you know, it's, it's amazing when you start to work with regenerative systems and, and understand how they work and, and set up the, the conditions to get that kind of momentum going in and of itself. And, you know, the, the kind of indicator that I always notice when you know your, your design is working well is when you start to create these ripple effects that are positive. These things you didn't even intend to happen start to happen. You're like, oh, wow, I didn't even plan for that, but this is amazing. Right. And, you know, like in Jerome Ossentowski's place at, at Crimpy, where I teach every year in the mountains, mm-hmm. you know, for example, he has ducks that, that just arrive on his property and start laying eggs in his pond or, or hummingbirds that fly in that he didn't even know were in that ecosystem. And, you know, things like that happened at the grow house where just through us doing what we were doing, we started to get all kinds of unexpected partnerships and and people would donate materials to us, donate money to us Mm -hmm. that we didn't even apply for. And so that's a great example of a regenerative system. It's, It's kind of the mirror image of the dreaded unintended consequences that most of our kind of degenerative systems in our current society happen, you know, where you have the best of intentions. And then after some time, you realize that this big vision you had is, is resulting in some externalities somewhere else, where it's, you know, polluting some, someone downstream or it's impoverishing someone halfway around the world. Regenerative system is the opposite of that, where you have unintended side effects, but they're positive. Yeah. So you just used the word externalities. And, you know, I have a master's degree from Arizona State University in urban and environmental planning and really sustainability. So we looked at a lot of externalities, but that's not a normal word that we see in our communities. Can you kind of dig into that? What's it mean and why is it important? Yeah, you bet. So an externality, it's a word that's often used in economics to represent a kind of side effect that's not being accounted for in the bottom line, in the the kind of dollar accounting. So, you know, it might be things like the the carbon emissions that you're putting into the atmosphere based on your manufacturing process, or it might be pollution, or it might be deforestation. It's something that usually is outside the realm of the business's calculations. And so it's, it's something that they don't need to think about. It's not something that the shareholders are demanding that they think about. So it's something that usually gets kind of pushed off to the side And the cost of that externality is borne by society as a whole. So society as a whole has to deal with the consequences of pollution, of climate change, rather than the business or other entity that created that externality. And so, you know, permaculture, maybe somewhat ambitiously, tries to create a system and a way of creating systems even where there are no externalities where we recognize the the second and third order ripple effects of our actions upon ecosystems, upon other communities. And to the extent that we have those ripple effects, we try and make them positive instead of negative. And we do that by looking at yield and wealth in more than just financial terms. I mean, the, the straight up dollar accounting is really important to have a regenerative system because you have to keep money coming in the door in order yeah. to you know, pay yourself to do it. So I'm not trying to say that that's not important, but there are all these other sources of wealth as well. In my book, I talk about, you know, these eight forms of capital that some of my colleagues, Gregory Landua and Ethan Rowland, developed this whole system of, you know, there's financial capital, that's dollars, but there's also things like spiritual capital, there's ecological capital, there's the built environment, that's kind of infrastructure, there's social capital, cultural capital. And so all of these are different forms of wealth that we're trying to create 
through our regenerative systems. And so if we're really looking at all those forms of wealth and making sure that none of them are depleted, then we're being a lot more mindful of avoiding those negative externalities. If we boil it down, the notion of externality is it's a pollution. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's a, a simple way of putting it. I mean, sometimes there's positive externalities, but yeah, usually the way we talk about externalities, it's this negative unintended consequence that's flowing out of your system. So yeah, you could call that pollution. Yeah. And what we do in permaculture is we take that extra stuff and we try and plug it back into the system. Is that not the case? Yeah, I think it was Mollison who said that pollution is just a resource we haven't figured out how to use yet. Yeah, that's where it came from. So what are you excited about in the upcoming year? Yeah, there's a lot of really cool stuff going on. So one of the things I, I've been excited about since this book came out and that I'm continuing to find some great opportunities in is, is working with people across the country around the themes of this social permaculture stuff that, that's in the book. So I've been doing a lot of travel and I have a lot more opportunities lined up. I'm doing like a social permaculture design for an urban farm in Missouri over the next few months. I'm going to be traveling to New Mexico, to Iowa, working with communities there to learn how to design with social permaculture, and a lot of work here in Denver. Um, last year, 2017, was the first year, in addition to teaching the, the permaculture design course, I started teaching a social permaculture course. So a whole, you know, five weekends just about these invisible structures. Yeah. And that was really, really amazing, life-changing for me as, as well as for the participants. And so I'm going to be uh, doing a lot more work here in Denver like that as well. And then the last thing that I'm really excited for in 2018 is, you know, this book, like I said, it's, it's a series of these really short chapters that each one is a design tool that people can use. And what I'd like to do in 2018 is to publish a deck of cards for each one of those design tools so people can use it as a more kind of interactive way that's just kind of a really short summary of that design pattern. And then they can refer to the book if they want more detail, if they want to flesh it out. Mm -hmm. But that, I think, will just help make this social permaculture design process a little bit more actionable and hands-on with the deck. Congratulations. It's really, you know, what you're up to in the social permaculture realm, it's a really, really important place to go because it's a new field in permaculture. You know, it's something that's been out there that we've spoken to that, you know, it gets some education in our permaculture design courses, but it hasn't gotten a lot of attention yet. So congratulations. Thanks. Yeah. And, you know, I just want to say, I feel like that's the Achilles heel of a lot of permaculture projects and what keeps them from being successful. You know, it's not that hard once you get the hang of it to grow food. The hard part is, is getting people to get along and, and figuring out how to grow food and make it financially viable and all of those kinds of things. And so if we can really attune our design minds to, to tackle those kinds of things, as well as the landscape stuff, then I think our, our projects will just be that much more successful. I so agree with that. And, the, you know, for, for that reason alone, this is why I struggle a little bit with the online permaculture design courses. Mm, because, yeah. you know, you're not plugging into the community when you're online. But when you're actually doing a permaculture design course and with a group of people, there's the social interaction, there's the process by which you mature from a social perspective. So yay for you. Yeah, thanks a lot. So I want to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you learned from it. Yeah, that's a great question. About three years ago now, as I was kind of working my way out of Grow House and starting to look at what I wanted to do next, I'd been involved in policy work at the city of Denver for a while on the Sustainable Food Policy Council. 
And the city had just finally decided to hire someone within the municipality to be in charge of food systems. And it was something that we had convinced folks on city council to lobby for, and the mayor decided to finally put it in his budget. And so they put out this job posting for the, the kind of manager of food systems development. It seemed like something I might have been really interested in, and I applied for it. I put a lot of thought into my application and got some great references together, really impressed people in the first interview, went into a second interview, and then you know didn't hear back for a while, wasn't sure what was going on, but felt like I was really you know well qualified for it. And then eventually found out that I didn't get the job and that it went to a colleague of mine who was also very well qualified and, and who I knew well. And so he's been in that role for the last few years. And, and of course, at first, I was disappointed because I'd put so much energy into, you know, imagining myself in this position. As time went on and, and I saw the work that he was really doing within the city and, and what his scope was, and also how hard he was working and all the politics he had to navigate, I realized that I really didn't want the job after all, and that it, it wasn't a good fit for me. And that whether or not that was something that the, the hiring committee had perceived or not, that, you know, I felt that things had really worked themselves out the way yeah. they had meant to work out. Because, you know, with the time I got from not getting that job, which, you know, would have been a full-time plus gig, that that allowed me instead to write this book, which I think is much closer to my real passion, yeah. as well as, as to engage in, in all kinds of other projects. So, I mean, I think that's a great example of the things that we perceive to be failures at first might actually be blessings in disguise. I can't tell you how many times that's happened to me in my life. <laughs> I bet. So what do you consider your biggest success? I think I'll, I'll have to, to say creating this institution that is continuing to grow and thrive after myself as the creator has stepped away. And that, you know, to me is the essence of a regenerative institution, a regenerative system. And that's kind of what, fortunately, I was able to do with the Grow House with the help of a lot of other really talented people that I was working with. But yeah, I mean, that's something I'm really proud of, that I can walk into the Grow House today and see that it is uh, still evolving, still growing, still changing, but is sticking to the values of permaculture and justice that I help instill it with in the very first years that, that I was there. And knowing that now I can move on and do my own stuff, but it's there doing its thing and doing it really well. Congratulations, by the way. That's, uh, that's hard to do. I've had some successes in Phoenix, and I've had some failures in Phoenix around that. So sure. putting an infrastructure in place that essentially creates a life of its own and moves forward is that's that's epic. It is. It feels epic. And, you know, like I said, it remains kind of one of one of my biggest achievements. Cool. What drives you? I think I'm driven by a combination of, of curiosity. I just love learning new things, meeting new people. I'm always kind of, you know, diving into new subjects that combined with our true desire to heal to make my community a better place, and particularly the community I was born and raised in. You know, there's a reason that I decided to move back to Denver after college because it's what I call my native habitat, right? It's the place I know the best, and, yeah. and I'm really invested in creating roots here. You know, I, I like to say that, you know, we ought to think about what it means to re-inhabit a place in the way indigenous people, whether they were the indigenous people of this continent, or our own ancestors in Europe or wherever we came from, the way they inhabited the land of sticking on it for many, many generations and getting yeah. to know its seasonal cycles. So anyhow, you know, what drives me is that desire to heal this community that I've spent my whole life in and, and that hopefully will continue to be home to my family for the time to come. Yeah, boy, I hear you on that one. I've lived in Phoenix for 50 years. 
My goal between now and when I die is to create a regenerative, thriving food system for Phoenix. Right. Yeah. So that's what I get to work on every day. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? So there is a really great book that came out a few years ago that I, I only encountered last year, but it seems, I think it's a really good companion to my book and really inspiring called Emergent Strategy. And it's by a woman named Adrienne Marie Brown, who's a community organizer and activist based in Detroit, Michigan. Both her book and mine are about really listening to natural systems and using what we learn from natural systems for social change. But whereas mine is very kind of methodical and rational and, you know, citing all these scientific studies, hers is very poetic and lyrical and inspiring in a very different way, but equally potent. I think anybody who's interested in kind of working with community to make social change, anybody that's concerned about the state of the world, I think would find it really inspiring and, and healing just to read. Beautiful. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? I would say the most important thing is, is to really identify the people in your community that are engaging with the world on a similar mindset and to spend as much time around them as you can and to really nurture those relationships. Because I think, you know, as most of us are surrounded by folks who, who either care but aren't able to apply that caring to, to making a better world or maybe who aren't aware of, of the same issues that you are, aren't passionate about the same issues. If we're surrounded by that all the time, it can feel like we're swimming upstream. Yeah. But if, if we can start to put ourselves in communities and just to you know show up at events or go to potlucks or host potlucks with people who are on the same page, right away that starts to ease some of that sense of, am I crazy? Am I, am I really, <laughs> you are, you know, we are yeah, exactly. If I'm crazy, then, then we can all be crazy together and we can all share this delusion, but, but have a great time doing it. Or maybe it's everybody else that's crazy. Who knows? But either way, finding those people and sticking with them, I think is, is the single most helpful thing to inspiring me on my path and continuing to keep me challenged and moving forward. And I think for most other people as well. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Adam. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. It's always great to dive into this stuff, and I look forward to more conversations to come. Beautiful. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? So my website is adambrock.me, A-D-A-M-B-R-O-C-K dot M-E, and you can find all my upcoming events. You can purchase my book. You can even get a signed copy on there, learn a lot more about what I'm up to. Beautiful. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash adambrock. We are your urban farming resource. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, podcasts, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. A popular fertilizer for organic farmers is fish poop. And aquaponic systems have been used to help create nutrient-dense growing mediums for healthy plants. Let us teach you how in a few easy steps. Just text GROWFISH to 33444 or visit IWANTTOGROWFISH.COM and you will receive our free webinar on how to grow your own fish-powered garden. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. 
Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.